James 1, 1 through 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of the truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The word of the Lord. This morning, we're beginning a brand new series on the book of James. Um, the book of James is all about how to do life. In fact, many scholars um, say that the book of James is an example of wisdom literature. In the Bible, wisdom is skill in the art of living. Wisdom is skill in the art of living. Um, is there anyone here who's not interested in learning how to live well? Just raise your hand and you can be excused. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Um, James is all about how to live well, but it's not just living in general. It's Christian living. James asks the question, okay, if you've had an encounter with Jesus, if your life has been changed by the gospel, then what should your life look like as a result of that? So that means that this book of James really is one of the most practical books in the Bible, both for believers and for non-believers. Uh, for instance, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're exploring faith in Jesus, uh, a very natural question to ask is, okay, 
if I become a Christian, if I give my life to Jesus, then what is my life going to look like as a result? Practically speaking, the book of James shows us. But if you are a believer, um, actually the book of James kind of gets in your face a little bit. On the one hand, James is very loving. He's very tender. He's writing to the Christians, and he's constantly calling them my beloved brothers and sisters. He's very loving and tender toward them, but he's also not afraid to call them out. He's constantly saying, in effect, okay, you say you're a Christian, great. But if that's the case, then here's the way your life is supposed to look. Does it? The book of James is all about how to live well as a follower of Jesus. But the beginning of this book, this first passage we read, is actually a little counterintuitive. In fact, maybe a lot, because right out of the gate, you know, it says, James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind. He's saying, rejoice in suffering. What in the world is going on with that? Here's what's going on. The Bible is very realistic, all right? The Bible doesn't say that when you become a Christian, that all your troubles just magically disappear. In fact, the Bible says, if you become a Christian, in many ways, your life gets harder. And notice James doesn't say, if you face trials, but when you face trials, it's going to happen. This passage is all about how to get ready. Because the moment of suffering is not the time that you should be getting prepared for the suffering. You have to get ready for the suffering before it happens. This passage shows us how, and it's brilliant. Let's walk through it together in three steps, all right? We're going to see God's goal for our lives, uh, God's method for achieving that goal, and lastly, why that method works, all right? God's goal for our lives, his method for achieving that goal, and lastly, why that method works, okay? First, his goal for our lives. And uh, again, he begins in the passage in verse 2 by saying, essentially, rejoice in trials, all right? But why? Why should we rejoice in trials? What's the point of the trials? Well, he goes on in verse 3. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Ah, so trials produce perseverance. But is that God's goal? Well, it's a goal, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment, but it's not God's ultimate goal. What is God's ultimate goal? Verse 4, it says, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, there it is. God's ultimate goal is that we would be mature, as he talks about in this passage. Now, that word mature is a very interesting word. It comes from the Greek word telos. We get our word telescope from that. What's a telos? A telos is the ultimate goal or purpose of something. Have you ever asked, you know, what's, what's the point of my life? What, what is my ultimate purpose in life? What's the point? What's the goal? What's the end game for my life? That's a telos. A telos is the ultimate goal or purpose of something. Now, um, in this translation, that word is translated mature, but there are a lot of other translations that actually translate this word perfect. And I think that's actually a better translation because what this is saying is God's ultimate goal for your life is that you would become perfect. Now, what does that mean? This is the same exact word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is part of a sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and at one point he says, you therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
And he uses this word, telos, the word perfect. But think about this. He does not say that he wants us to be a new and improved, better version of the self that we already are. Because what he says is, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is not just a new and improved version of you. Okay? In other words, it, this is not the difference between a baby caterpillar and a grown-up caterpillar. The, Jesus is talking about the difference between a caterpillar and a butterfly. Or let me put it like this. If the best you that you can be is a you that you can imagine, you are selling yourself far short. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. And that's what James is telling us. God's ultimate goal is that we would be perfect, that we would be just not just a new and improved you, but a whole new you. That's his goal. In fact, that really comes out at the end in verse 18. If you look all the way down at the end of the passage, um, James says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that's the gospel, in order that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And that word first fruits, we've talked about that here before. It, uh, first fruits is the first crop that comes up out of the ground before a harvest. That means that a first fruits is both a sample of more to come and a promise of more to come. First fruits is both a sample and a promise of more to come. So what is James actually talking about here? We're at first fruits of God's creation. What James is doing is he's tapping into the main storyline of the Bible. In the beginning of the Bible, it says God created this world to be a place of perfection, to be a place of beauty and glory and harmony and flourishing and peace. But because humanity rebelled against God, everything's falling apart. I mean, that's why we have things like war and poverty and sickness and uh, natural disasters and racism and death. But, but throughout the Bible, there's a promise over and over and over again that one day God himself is going to come back and he is going to renew this world. And not just renew this world, the Bible says that God is going to cause this world to erupt into a life of such surging beauty and power that we can't even conceive it. That's what he's going to do. So for example, in Psalm 96, uh, it says that when God comes back to renew the world, all the trees of the forest are going to sing for joy. Now, maybe you say, oh, it's, that's a nice symbol. Yeah, it's a symbol, but that's only because we don't actually have language that's capable of describing the reality. I mean, this is why we yearn for justice. This is why we all yearn for every wrong to be put right, for the world to be restored, because because there is a memory trace in every single human being that reminds us of what this world once was. And it's also a promise of something greater that this world is yet to become. When James says that God is making us a kind of first fruits of his creation, what he's saying is that everything God is going to do to the universe one day, first he's going to do to us. God's ultimate goal is not just that we would be new and improved versions of the selves that we already are, but that we would be new selves, a new you, that we would be perfect. Now, this is really at odds with where our culture is at. Um, for instance, a strictly naturalistic worldview says there is no God, and therefore everything in this world, including human beings, is simply the result of random, irrational forces. That means there is no goal, there is no telos. It means that human beings 
aren't created for perfection, whatever that means, because human beings aren't supposed to be anything at all. There is no goal. There is no telos. Therefore, according to our culture, the only way you can really find meaning and purpose in this life is if you create it for yourself. And really, that is the grand storyline of the culture that we live in. Our culture says you can't let anyone else tell you who to be. You can't let anyone else tell you what to do. You have to determine your own purpose. You have to determine your own telos. You can't look outside to some God who defines you in order to do that. The only way you can do that is to look inside of yourself and listen to what your heart is telling you. Because there is no ultimate truth. There is no ultimate meaning. There is no ultimate telos. You have to create that and define that for yourself. But here's the irony with that. We can't get rid of that memory trace that's deep down inside each and every one of us. We know deep inside that that we were meant to be perfect, and yet we also know that we're not. And that means we've got a problem. The problem is we don't have the power to perfect ourselves. We don't have the power to turn ourselves into the people that we know deep down We're meant to be. The best we can do, to go back to our metaphor, the best we can do is make improvements on the caterpillar. But but we don't have the power to actually turn the caterpillar into a butterfly. Only God can do that. And that means that we spend all of our focus and attention on working on self-improvement projects. But the best that our self-improvement projects can do is it never leads to perfection. The only thing it does is it leads to perfectionism. And there's a big difference between those two things. I mean, think about it. Do you know where toxic shame comes from? Or do you know where um, eating disorders uh, or addictions come from? Do you know where um, obsessive status-seeking or workaholism or the the need for serial sexual partners or or, uh, obsessive exercising and, and all kinds of other dysfunctions, do you know where all those things ultimately come from? Most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, they come from one simple but devastating lie. The lie is, we think we have to be perfect before we can be loved. We think we have to be perfect before we can be loved. And that lie shows up all over the place. So for religious people, religious people are always saying, well, I have to be a good person. I have to obey all of God's rules in order for God to love me and accept me. But the lie shows up in secular culture as well, because secular Folks, we're always saying, well, you have to be beautiful, you have to be rich, you have to be smart, you have to be thin, you have to have the right job title, the right salary, the right house, the right this or that, in order to find the status and the significance and the affirmation that we all long for. That lie works itself into every area of our life and every facet of our society. The lie is we think we have to be perfect in order to be loved, but the gospel tells us the exact opposite of that. It says that we don't perfect ourselves into God's love. The gospel says God loves us into perfection. Because look once again at verse 18. You see what it says? God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. God chose to give us birth. Let me ask you a question. What do you contribute to being born? Absolutely nothing. The gospel says that God gets to work in your life before you're perfect. God gets to work in your life even though your life is a mess, even though you're full of all kinds of inconsistencies and moral compromise and all kinds of imperfections in your life. God gets to work at your life before you're 
perfect. While your life is a mess, it means that he brings his life, his light, his love, his glory into your life through Jesus by grace, and that begins the work of perfection. And, and by the way, this is a process. It's gradual, it's slow, it's, it's very painful, and it's never going to be completed during our lifetime, okay? I just want to throw that out there. This is not something that gets completed in our lifetime, but this is God's ultimate goal for your life. And one day it will be completed. On the day that he comes to renew the world or the day you die, whichever comes first, God's ultimate goal is not just that you would be a new and improved, better version of the you that you already are. It's that you would be a whole new you. His goal is that you would be perfect. And that leads to our second point. We've just seen God's goal for our lives. But the second thing we need to see is God's method for achieving that goal. And we see that if we go back to verses 2 and 3. James says, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So right there, we're seeing that one of the main ingredients in God's goal for your life is trials, afflictions, suffering. Yay! (laughs) But why? Why is that? James says, he says, Because trials produce perseverance. Trials produce perseverance. Now that also is a very interesting word in the Bible. It's actually one of the most um, common and powerful words in the Bible. That that word perseverance, um, I'm going to give you the Greek word, okay? It's two words. Hypomene, okay? Hypomene. The mene part means to stand or to stay. The hypo part, well, it's where we get our word hyper. You know how, like, if your kids are going crazy getting into all kinds of shenanigans and bouncing off the walls. Have you ever said, hey, quit being so hyper? What are you saying? You're saying, bring down the intensity level a few notches. Hyper means intense, okay? So literally what this word perseverance means is to hyperstand. You hyperstand. To hyperstand means that no matter what hits you, no matter how hard the wind blows, no matter how powerful the storm is, no matter how um, huge the wave is, no matter what hits you, it can't blow you away, it can't knock you down, it can't sweep you aside. You stand fast. Suffering is one of God's main ingredients for producing his goal of perfection for your life. It's not the only ingredient, but it is one of the main ingredients. And why is that? It's because when you hyperstand in the face of suffering, that actually has the power to turn you into something great. Um, it, you know how diamonds are formed? I always thought um, that they come from coal, but I actually I looked it up because I wanted to make sure, because I don't want to say something that's getting recorded and going out into the internet world. You know, Eric Stiller thinks that diamonds come from coal. I looked it up, okay? Diamonds actually come from highly organized carbon material. Do not ask me what the difference is between coal and highly organized carbon material because I have no idea. But apparently this highly organized carbon material is stuff that's buried 100 miles beneath the surface of the earth. And then it takes a combination of over 2,000 degrees of heat and 725,000 pounds per square inch of pressure applied to the carbon material in order for it to begin forming into a diamond. In other words, it takes extremely high heat and extremely high pressure for the raw material to become turned into something valuable and beautiful and inestimable in our culture. Friends, suffering 
is when the heat gets turned up really high and the pressure gets turned up really high, it's, it's then that actually the suffering has the power to turn us into something great. But it's not automatic. I mean, you, you've seen this, or it's happened to you. Suffering has the power to make you more humble, make you more empathetic, make you more resilient, more courageous, more compassionate, more loving. It does. But suffering also has the power to make you more bitter or angry or resentful or self-pitying or self-absorbed. Suffering is the power to do either one of those things. What's the difference? The difference is all in how you respond to it. The difference is how you respond. So notice, James actually talks about this in verses 3 through 5. He starts talking about wisdom. And when James talks about wisdom in this section, he's actually talking about the kind of wisdom that we need in order to help us get through the suffering. So in verses 3 through 5, James says, if you need wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you, but you can't doubt. Don't be double-minded. Now, when we look at that word doubt, um, it's very easy for us to think, wait a minute, is James saying that we have to be 100% certain of God 100% of the time? Does this mean that we can never have any questions about God, that we can never have any kinds of struggles in our faith? Is that what this is saying? No, that's not what this is saying. The way to understand this is to understand this word double-minded. Because James says a doubting person is a double-minded person. What is a double-minded person? Double-minded, literally the word means two souls or two lives. Um, That means someone whose heart and soul and life is divided between two loyalties. it's, It's when your loyalties are divided. So in other words, maybe you say, well, I believe in God. And, and I'm, I want to be 100% loyal to God, but at the same time, you're loyal to something else. You know, you're living for something else. Maybe you're living for marriage and romance. Maybe you're living for career success. Maybe you're living for kids and family. Maybe it's your grades or financial security or pleasure or success. Whatever it might be, you're living for something. And, and you know what makes suffering really hard, what makes it really terrible? It's when the thing that you're living for is threatened. For instance, maybe you're living for children and family, your kids, um, and something happens to your career. Well, if that happens, um, you know, that might hurt a little bit, but you take it in stride. But if something happens to those kids, you melt down. Or um, maybe you're really living for your career and something happens to your marriage. And, and maybe it hurts, it's disappointing, but you kind of find a way to get through that. But if something happens to your career, you fall apart. You see how this works? It's when your loyalties are divided. Your, your true loyalty is somewhere else. Your heart belongs to something else. Your loyalty belongs to something else. And when the trial comes along that threatens that thing, whatever it is, that's when we need to learn how to hyperstand on God. Because that's when God says to us, I know you're standing on this thing, but if you make this thing the anchor of your life and it's blown away, you'll be blown away. Stand on me. You see, it all depends on your response to suffering. And boy, that really comes out um, toward the end of this passage in verses 13 through 15. It's really interesting. Um, James actually gives us a case study of somebody whose loyalties are divided. So in verse 13, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. Now, what does that mean? Evil desires is a word that 
the Bible uses to talk about extreme desire, excessive desire, inordinate desire. But understand something very important. When the Bible uses this word, evil desire, it is not saying that the thing we desire is evil. So if you desire marriage or family or career success, it's not saying that those things are evil. It's saying we desire those things more than God. And friends, that is the definition of sin. Sin is whenever something else other than God is your ultimate desire. It's when you're giving the ultimate loyalty of your heart to something other than God. And if we do that, then when some trial comes along to threaten that thing, whatever it is, that's when we have a choice. That's when the choice is, how are we going to respond to this? Because we all have a choice at that moment, either to say, okay, God, I want to stand on you. And I don't care how hard the wind blows. I don't care how hard the storm hits. I'm going to stand on you. Or we can say, God must be tempting me. Because God can't really love me. Because if God really loved me, then he wouldn't let something happen to this thing. He wouldn't do it. You see, it all depends on your response to the suffering. And your response to the suffering depends on your goal for living. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. I mean, either it's God's goal. God's goal, his ultimate goal is that you would become perfect people. But so often our ultimate goal is that we would simply have a perfect life. And there's a big difference between those two things. If, if your ultimate goal is that you would have a perfect life, then suffering really can never play any kind of meaningful ingredient in that goal. It can only be an interruption to that goal. If, if your goal is to have a perfect life, suffering is never an ingredient in that goal. It's only an interruption to that goal. And that really is our society's posture towards suffering. I mean, think about it. In a secular world, God doesn't play any meaningful role in this life. Our attention, our focus is all on this world. So think about all the ways that we use things like technology or medicine or politics. What are the goals of those things in our world? All of those things really are aimed at, they're focused on minimizing suffering and, and trying to help us have a better life. But God says that his goal is not just that we would have a perfect life, but that we would be perfect people. If our goal is just to have a perfect life, suffering can never be an ingredient in that goal. It's only an interruption. Now understand something. I am not saying, and, and certainly the Bible is not saying, that we should not care about addressing suffering or injustice in the world. What the Bible says, we talked about it, one day God himself is going to come back. He's going to right every wrong. He's going to wipe every single tear. We should care about suffering and injustice in this world. But we can't control everything that happens in our life. And when, not if, but when that trial comes along that threatens that thing that's in chief competition in your heart for God, when that moment comes, then we have a choice. How are we going to respond to the suffering? Because here's the basic message of this passage. It's, it's actually pretty simple. But if you walk out of here with one thing this morning, this is it. Your response to suffering determines whether it will be an interruption to your goal or an ingredient in God's goal. Your response to suffering determines whether it will be an interruption to your goal or an ingredient in God's goal. And if that's the case, and it is, then let me apply this by just asking you a couple of questions, okay? And the first question is this, what is your goal? What is your telos? Is it God or is it something else? Because if it's something other than God, then Eventually, a trial is going to come along that's going to threaten that thing. And if you build your life on something that can be blown away, guess what? 
you're going to be blown away. What is your goal? What is your telos? And the second question is this, will you say yes to God's goal? Will you say yes to God's goal for your life? Verse 4, James says, let perseverance finish its work. Let it finish its work. In other words, let God have his way. Let the trial have its way with you. Let the trial do its work. Let the heat and the pressure, let it do its work. Now, understand, I am not saying that this means we become a doormat and you just let people abuse you. It also doesn't mean, as I said, that we never care about addressing suffering or injustice in this world. But again, we can't control everything that happens in our life. And when that trial hits, are you going to stand on God and his goal for your life? Or are you going to stand on yourself and your own goal for your life? Will you say yes to God's goal for your life? And you know, here, here's the thing. At the end of the day, a lot of times, just being obedient to God will bring suffering into your life. That's why the Bible says a lot of times if you become a Christian, your life gets harder because just obeying him will make your life harder. It'll make you suffer. I mean, if you have the opportunity to cheat on a business deal to make a little bit more money and you don't do it, you suffer. Or if you have the opportunity to tell a a little white lie, it's just a little lie in order to save face and look good in front of people, but you don't do it. Maybe your reputation goes down a notch in the eyes of that person. It means you suffer. Or, or maybe you want to sleep with that person you're not married to, but you don't do it. You suffer. Suffering, a lot of times, is increased just by virtue of the fact that we're trying to be obedient to God. Friends, your response to suffering determines whether it will be an interruption in your goal or an ingredient in God's goal. And that leads to our last point, because we've seen God's goal for our lives. We've seen his method for achieving that goal. But lastly, we need to see why this method actually works. Because here's the big question. Maybe you say, okay, I want to believe and not doubt. Maybe you say, God, I want to stand on you, and and I want to make you the anchor of my life, but how? And even more than that, if I do make you the anchor of my life, God, how can I know that you're not going to let me down? We need to find a way to to stand fast, to hyperstand in the midst of suffering. We need to find a way to to find joy in the midst of our suffering. How are we going to do that? The only way is to see the one who already did all of it for you. Go back to this word persevere, hyperstand, stand fast, endure. As I said, that's one of the most important words in the Bible. It shows up everywhere. But but there's nowhere that that word shows up that's more powerful and more significant than in Hebrews chapter 12. In many ways, Hebrews chapter 12 really is the climax of uh, this whole passage here in James chapter 1 because Hebrews 12 tells the story of Jesus, the ultimate one who stood fast and endured the trial. Do you want to know how you're going to stand fast, hyperstand in the midst of your sufferings and find joy? How can you consider it? Pure joy when you encounter trials, Hebrews 12 says, consider Jesus. Hebrews 12 is talking about trials. It's talking about suffering. And in the midst of that, it says, consider Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It says he endured. It's the same word, hyperstand. Jesus stood fast in the midst of his trial on the cross. When all the weight of all of our sin was coming down upon him and upon his shoulders. Jesus endured. He stood fast. He he was able to hyperstand. Why? Because 
Here's the thing. Do you realize what this is telling us? It says, because Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the trial of the cross. Do you know what Jesus was doing on the cross? Jesus actually had a goal on the cross. On the cross, Jesus had a telos. Do you know what it was? It says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy for which Jesus endured the trial of the cross? It was you. It was me. You are his joy. You are his desire. Jesus endured the trial of the cross because you are his joy. And so when all of the weight and the torment and the horror and the agony of all of our sin, all of our divided loyalties, all of the ways we make something other than God, the ultimate desire of our lives, when the weight of all of that was coming down on Jesus and crushing him, he stood fast. He endured. And he did it all because you are the ultimate joy of his heart. Friends, you can stand fast and find joy in the midst of your trial because Jesus made you the joy in the midst of his trial. You know, there's a, an old story I once heard about a group of mountain climbers. I think it's a true story uh, about a group of mountain climbers who were climbing up a mountain and they were all connected together by the same rope. And, and as they were going up the mountain, they got really high up on the mountain when all of a sudden the unthinkable happened. The bottom climber, the, the person on the bottom, lost his footing, and he slipped off of the mountain and fell into the air. And as he was hurtling down, uh, all the other climbers, they looked down, and they had this sickening realization of what was about to happen to them. Because what happened was the very next climber up the line saw the rope running out, tighten around his waist, and then it jerked him off the mountain too. And then one by one, each one of the climbers in succession began getting torn off the side of the mountain. And because they were all connected by the same rope, and because the weight of all the climbers was so great, none of them could withstand it. None of them could endure. They couldn't stand fast, except the last man, the man on top. The last man, the man on top, when he saw what was happening and he realized what was going to happen to him eventually, what he did was he took his pickaxe, And he drove it as deep and as hard as he could into the side of the mountain. He held on, and then he stood. He stood fast. And as he watched the rope run out on his waist, literally you could hear the the snap as the rope um, ripped into his skin. And you could hear his ribs cracking as, as the weight of all of the other climbers was literally crushing him. And yet, even though he was being pulled down, by the weight of all the other climbers, he grabbed hold and very slowly, step by agonizing step, one step at a time, he began to climb up the face of the mountain and he pulled all the other climbers to safety. Friends, don't you know? Jesus is the man on top. He's the one who, even though he was being crushed by the weight of all of our sin, all our divided loyalties, all our hearts that are going after something, anything other than God, even though Jesus was being pulled down by all the weight of our sin on the cross, he stood fast. He endured. Why? For the joy of the goal of pulling us all up and making us like himself. Your response to suffering determines whether that suffering will be an interruption to your goal or an ingredient in God's goal. Friends, when you see Jesus making you his joy in the midst of his trial, then you can find joy in the midst of your trial. 
when you see Jesus standing fast out of loyalty to you, then you can stand fast out of loyalty to him. But you don't do it in your strength. You do it in his. It'll turn you into a diamond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. It seems counterintuitive and even um, mind-boggling to say thank you for our trials. But Lord, we thank you for everything that you send. Uh, Father, as the old great former slave trader turned, um, turned Christian and pastor, John Newton once wrote, um, everything that you send is necessary and nothing that you withhold is needful. Father, we thank you for all that you send into our life and pray that you would help us to embrace your goal for our life, not our goal, but your goal, and that you would help us, therefore, to hyperstand, to stand fast in the midst of our suffering, knowing that it's going to produce perseverance and that that perseverance is going to be one of your main ingredients in turning us into the people you created us to be. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.